fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn, with me, the physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan, it is great to be here, and it's always exciting to me. You know, they always say the professional hitters, the best of them bat 300. You know, you do really awesome at 400, and I love it that you're still batting 1,000 at recommending things. I have no clue how you're going to pull it off, and then you do. So um, I hope I didn't just curse you then by putting those numbers out in the universe, but I'm I'm ready and raring to go. Well, I will tell you that 400 will get you into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and also, I thought you were going to say batting 100 on movies you like, which you didn't go with, because I know that that's not 100%. Uh, but movies that I <laughs> movies that I happen to pull off for this show, I think it is 100%. I'm going with you on that. Uh, and, and when it comes to 100%, when I think of numbers, and especially that number, I think of Ben Siebser, our enigmatic engineer. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? Dan? This week, I've answered an urgent Space Camp alumni call. We've gathered in Houston at the Johnson Space Center. There are two lost campers that have returned after being missing for 20 years. I can't wait to find out where they have been all this time. (laughs) You said Johnson. Uh, And the Johnson Space (laughs) Center, when when I make a quote like that, of course we're talking about Beavis and Butthead, do the universe. That's what inspired this episode. Uh, I may question that later, but I'm going with that right now. Uh, Now, as a movie, let's talk about this as a movie first before we get into the science behind this. Uh, This, in a lot of ways, felt very dumber and dumb and dumber-ish, which is definitely a word. Uh, And what made me think that is these two guys, Beavis and Butthead, kind of bumble through the story they make the they have complete incompetence they make mind-numbing decisions and somehow at the end of it they look like geniuses it is possible and i'm curious what you guys think it is possible that they are operating at a level that is far beyond human comprehension and we just are not noticing it and society is not ready for their way of thinking well dan that that could be it it's a it's an interesting thing and, and as someone who I have to admit this publicly, you know, for the first time, has never actually seen Beavis and Butthead until you had me watch this movie for the show. Um, you know, I have that novice's view and opinion of this. And and I liked your comment at the beginning of your description of them. You know, they just go, go through it in a mind-numbing way, and yet it all works out. Mm-hmm. And it does it does bring to the forefront... This idea that, you know, many of us should embrace of, one, living in the now, and two, not worrying too much about the future, because apparently it all will work out, even if you don't realize you have a rearview mirror while driving backwards until just before it shot out. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Zen according to Beavis and Butthead. Uh, That is a a book in the making. Now, I imagine, Ben, what what are your thoughts on this when you first watched this? Because I feel like you might have been of the age where you could have watched them initially, but I feel like they were not really <laughs> up your alley. Uh, you know, I, 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 well, I think the real problem is growing up, I didn't have MTV or cable for that matter, <laughs> so I never got to watch Beavis and Butthead uh, until I was older. Okay. Uh, and 
I definitely I, I enjoyed a little bit their their revival in the late twenty teens or the mid twenty teens. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they they weren't necessarily my thing. But <laughs> I, I think they're I think they're funny in their own way. And I think th- this movie just goes to show you that you know all all sorts of people can contribute in their own ways to society and we need to embrace that you know it takes it takes many folks and it takes many uh many different kinds of brains and people to make uh whether it's science or society work i mean that that's extraordinarily well said <laughs> and i love you i love talking about science because leading into this the first thing that we see is a science fair and that leads us into quite a bit here, especially with you, Ben, because what they find out while kicking each other in the genitals is that if they win the science fair, they get to go to space camp. Now, as someone mm-hmm. who has gone to space camp, uh, this had to be very exciting for you, even though I would think that Beavis and Butthead are really the anti-Ben. <laughs> Perhaps, although I will say whatever they went to was not was not space camp uh it was clearly some sort of internship or something much nicer because space camp is in alabama not in texas and you don't get to meet astronauts or see the real equipment in in alabama you know at the marshall space center um you know that that's just it's different so i you know i would have really loved when i was at space camp in the 90s like when they were uh, to have gotten to meet shuttle astronauts, that would have been super cool. Um, unfortunately, we did not get to do that. Well, let me um, let me ask you a question here, Ben. So, when you were watching this movie, as much as you love mm-hmm. space, as much as stuff as you've done in the field of mm-hmm. rocketeering, uh, I don't know if that's a word. I mm-hmm. guess rocketeering is flying around with a jetpack, but you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, <laughs> rocketry, sure. rocketry, sure. <laughs> did, did, rocketry. Did you feel any jealousy in watching this movie, knowing that Beavis and Butthead? Were, sele- were hand-selected to go into space and dock a space station, uh, and you never got that opportunity despite your, your clear uh, proficiency in the matter. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's the question of going to space, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the stuff I've designed uh, went to space and successfully has docked with the space station uh, gosh, I don't even know how many times at this point. Quite a <laughs> as few. As many times as we see uh, Beavis and Butthead dock the space station, I'm guessing. Certainly, certainly at least one more than that. Because <laughs> <laughs> Beavis they, and Butthead plus zero. one. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, when they were practicing uh, in the. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Pra- well, yeah. I mean, well, then you'd have to go for how many times did, did our practice uh, sure, simulations go, sure, which would be sure. countless. Right. Uh, <laughs> Right. So I, I think it's it's fascinating because there's a there's a, always a question of the value of of humans in the loop when it comes to things like uh, orbital rendezvous, which is what a docking is. And, you know, it's it's a difficult task because when you're flying around in, in orbit, things don't work the same way as they do as as you would intuitively think. Like if you go, if, let's say you're chasing the space station and you speed up to try to catch it, you're also going to raise your orbit. So you also have to like counteract the fact that your your orbit is trying to now go higher. So you have to fire your ro- your rockets to push you down a little bit to counteract the orbit raising. It's a really, really complicated procedure and system. And 
it's not something, it's something a human can do, but it's something a computer can do a lot better. <laughs> and so I feel like I, I'm less, and I'm not, I'm not so much jealous of them as I am amazed that they're, they were able to do this at all because it's not an easy thing to do. Especially not an easy thing to do for those particular two individuals, is what you're saying. No, for anybody. Even the most trained astronauts currently, they let the computers do all the work. The, the, the humans are not flying the Dragon spacecraft that docks with the space station. The computer's doing it. And yeah, uh, <laughs> I, it, well, it's hard to imagine Beavis and Butthead doing it, especially given the, how little time-wise they had in training. And I would have to add to this, Dan, just for clarity, and Ben, um, Beavis and Butt had never actually successfully do it in space, one. And, yeah. and two, they are trying to do it blind. So, Dan, I think that's an added complication that, that's worth talking about because the average, the average space astronaut would not attempt to dock blind even if they were going to take over from the computer. That's just a theory I have, um, but, yeah. but I think it's well supported. Well, w without your vision, you wouldn't know you were off track in the first place. So. Right. <laughs> I think that that's very true. Uh, now, I will say before we dive into this, I got to make one other mention here is that I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a little more equipped to talk about this movie because I had a friend growing up, a very good friend who was a lot like Butthead minus the braces. Uh, he had the same haircut. He wore Metallica and ACDC T-shirts every day. Uh, he always wanted to do stupid stuff, and he was physically abusive. Uh, same Dobie haircut. But this was kind of a trend in my neighborhood, probably just where I grew up. So I knew a lot of buttheads, is what I'm saying. But one thing I never let them do was kick me in the genitals, which we talked about earlier, that, that, that uh, you know, nut-squashing event that we had. Now, this is interesting because we, this, the movie opens up on them kicking each other in the nards, as the, my, one of my favorite movies used to say. And what they eventually come to is this gigantic automated kicking machine. A and I was intrigued by this because it's kind of like an analog power kicker. Uh, probably it's something to do with footballs and field goals. And I want to say that there's a man named Justin Tucker, a human being, who is arguably the most accurate kicker in NFL history. I know this because I had him on my fantasy football team when I was uh, last year, uh, when I was, I, I wasn't anywhere near winning, but he was great. Best person on my team, which is unfortunate, which is why I knew about him so much. But anyway, he has, he has almost robotic accuracy as a human being. Now, what about this machine? Can we create something that has robotic accuracy as a robot? Well, Dan, yes and no, right? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pieces of this that can become more reproducible, but there are two challenges that you really face in designing something that is super, super accurate. Now, you've achieved 100% accuracy in coming up with shows I don't think work that then work, but that's an intellectual accuracy, right? right? Yeah, it has yeah. no physical limitation. Your brain is not limited no. by, you know, physical structures. Right. Um, in this case, you have to take the object, right? And just think about the motion of the, just the kicking path, yeah. right? You want that to be reproducible. So you need something to hold it in line, but you also need it to be free to move. 
So you always have these competing effects of holding it as straight as you can, but without creating so much friction that the foot doesn't move. Um, and so that's why every system always has a little bit of play in it. And that little bit of play translates into a small angular variation. And angles, as we know, I mean, anyone who's watched me do archery, you know, a little angular error, the farther the distance you go, the bigger the mistake and the more you miss. So there is that challenge of getting the accuracy, just that core basic. There's a lot of other things that go into the engineering um, that are well beyond my physics brain, but that basic physics step in geometry is where you start. I, th I think this plays well with the a concept of engineering called the tolerance stack up, which is that every piece of a machine has its own a little bit amount of a little bit of error. And generally speaking, all of those errors will kind of average out and make the machine reliable because, you know, one piece will go a little high, the other piece will go a little low, it'll bounce out, it'll be okay. But every once in a while, you'll have a condition where all of the errors go high or all of the errors go low, and now all of a sudden your machine fails. And this is one of the, the pro this is, this is the complexity in building multi-part machines that every once in a while you, lo you lose that lottery mm -hmm. and your machine fails because all of you didn't average out your errors. Right. Yeah. And this would happen with a kicker like this because there's a little bit of bend in the leg, there's a little bit of slop in the gears, there's a little bit of uh, delay in the motor kicking on and its commutation coils will be a little bit off every time. And every once in a while, all that stuff is going to stack up and you're going to miss your field goal. Well, one thing that's really interesting about this is this particular machine was actually created by an engineer that most people know named Mark Rober. I'm going to put a link up. Now, I like Mark Rober. He's great. But I will tell you, and I'm not a petty man at all. You guys know this. But on my other show, Fascinating Nouns, he agreed to do the show before he became super popular. And then once he did, he never returned my phone calls. Uh, I guess he was too busy <laughs> making incredible videos. Not that, I'm, not that I'm at all, you know, upset or anything. But I will tell you, this video is really good. And he's made this machine, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it, not the fact that it was dressed up as Ray Finkel, which I did find very funny, is that one of the <laughs> things they talk about being very important to kicking a football is leg speed and kicking it exactly 2.2 inches or 5.5 centimeters from the bottom of the football. I found that part to be extraordinarily fascinating. And when you take all the field conditions into play and those particular specifications, the one thing I've got to ask is could you make a machine? Maybe that doesn't kick field goals for you because we don't want robots getting into our football games, American football. I think we can all three of us can agree on that. But what maybe we can do, although I do think it is cheating, is creating some kind of system that will tell you exactly how you need to kick the ball to make the field goal. But as a human being, you got to go out and do it. You know, that's interesting, Dan, because there what you're talking about is, you know, knowing – I think everyone thinks, oh, it's just the wind conditions, right? Like that's the first thing that comes to mind. And, and the wind can be the main one. But here's the, the cool thing about that, right, is you're trying to create a machine that's also going to pick and guess what the center's going to do and what the holder's going to do, mm -hmm. right? So you have right. a machine that's not just predicting weather conditions, 
but predicting human conditions. Um, and that would be kind of fun. Like, I, I know I know that would make it weird. I'm it. not sure if I want it, you know. But, like, what, what are you doing? Really, you, like, mind reading at this moment? Like, are you trying to get into the – so, you know, what, how, what are you detecting? Is everybody wearing, like, an Apple Watch um, and, and a brain set? Like, you know, do we need to bring Ben in and design new helmets? Right. right? Like, is the placeholder, you know, just thinking about, you know, how the stock market is tanking and what that's doing for – retirement fund right, or you yeah, know yeah. or is he focused <laughs> is he focused on the hike like you know there's a lot of variables here that make this an interesting and challenging problem I, i'm excited to take this on dan if if you want us to be you know the fascinating football place kicking team I, i'm with you <laughs> well i know that you did do some work for the la rams uh he's doing some science and physics there <laughs> studying uh i put all the, i said a lot of words put them in the wrong order you were studying the <laughs> physics of football for the la rams that's the proper sentence structure uh <laughs> well let's, w- be, let's be clear <laughs> i was doing it while the la rams were doing their first ever practice summer at uci i'm not sure they really needed my help but we <laughs> we, we, we we filmed me anyway explaining what they should be doing well that year they did that uh, year they could they could have used yeah. you uh, but i will tell you probably how that machine would work and ben i want you to comment on this is i'm guessing Guessing they mm-hmm. would use analytics and figure out what those place kickers, how often do they go uh, awry. They would use the very thing that is ruining sports today to make kicking more accurate, is my guess. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think, I, well, it comes down to a lot of this stuff. And it comes back down to those tolerance things. So, you know, if, if you start with the the kick, the ball holder, right? The <laughs> That's what it's called. That's, that's what they're called. Yeah, the ball holder. <laughs> you said ball holder. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it starts with that. Like, it, what angle is is the ball at on the ground? Like, is he holding it perfectly upright? Does he have the proper angle? <laughs> and so it's not just the it's not just the analytics. Yeah. It's it's the it's 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 image recognition. It's it's the kicker looking at that the the placement and deciding and having to make adjustments for oh the ball's leaning back a little bit. I got to adjust for that. The ball's leaning to the side a little bit. I got to adjust for that. The laces aren't perfectly straightforward. I got to adjust for that. So there's all this stuff you have to compensate for. And if you have enough of this analytical knowledge of all the different errors that can go into the, that, and is the ball a little bit forward, is it a little bit back? Do I have to adjust where I where my plant foot goes to get my kick in the right spot? All of that will have to combine to get the, the repeatability of a perfect kick. But again, it's all those variables, and there's just so many variables, especially when you have a human, multiple humans in the loop, which is the case in football. Well, I will tell you, one of the downsides, not only of that, but also of watching a Beavis and Butthead movie and then talking about it intellectually, is that everything I hear sounds like... I feel like I'm a 12-year-old kid again. So uh, I laughed several <laughs> times during that description uh, about balls, angles, hardness, and size. So I apologize to the listeners. I apologize to you guys. I will keep it more professional as we move on to rocket science and docking, which uh, I love that they become the guys who are going to dock uh, this extraordinarily phallic-shaped object into uh, a, 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 a crevice, a hole where it's going to go. Uh, this captures their attention because it's very similar to human coitus, and they are—they are, if nothing else, these two boys are 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 fueled by the need to score, and this makes them extraordinarily uh, adept ship dockers. 
And and I love this because you know evolution, the very the very thing that life on this planet has been fueled by the the the, the by by reproduction, by the need to reproduce, by passing on your genes. These two boys are no different. And I love that finally we are seeing that they are getting the the opportunities they deserve because of this. They're not being shamed publicly uh, for their their adolescent obsession with sex, but they are instead being um, – they are given opportunities that other people may not have. I, I love this part of the movie. Uh, Denna, what do you think about it? Well, you know, I think I, – I love how you bring this back to evolution, Dan. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing like trying to take something – that is pure humor and turn it into an ec- intellectual exercise. Yep. And that is why you are the analytical mastermind. <laughs> that is what I do. Um, <laughs> evolution, the, the, the engine of evolution is fueled by the need to reproduce. Uh, that's going on. I, I, and you know what I really think, Dan? Mm-hmm. I think that is a great quote for <laughs> a is. cup. That is beautiful <laughs> you know? for a cup. Now, Absolutely. I mean, I, I love I am the physics phenom. Obviously, you know, I, I take that very personally. Yeah. Um, and it's a cool quote. But I'm, I'm looking forward to the the um, engine of evolution quote on a, on a T-shirt or a mug. I think, you know, I think that is where our merchandise might evolve to. Hey, whatever sells, right? That's what I say. It's important, though, Denon, to also think about thirst in space, because if you're in space, you need a sealable container, not a mug, because then your water is going to float around and not stay where it needs to go. So you need a, a water bottle with a lid so that your water stays where it needs to be while you're traveling, whether it's in space or just up a mountain on a nice hike. Well, and Beavis and Butthead are nothing if not thirsty, as the kids say nowadays. Uh, but, you know, this is... When, when they are on the space shuttle, there is this very poignant moment that, of course, they miss, uh, where they, they get a chance to look out from the space shuttle. They can see the void of space to their right and this beautiful blue pearl known as Earth on their left. Uh, now, for them, they don't really care much about this, but um, the commander just comments on how important this is. And this is a real thing. As a matter of fact, William Shatner just wrote, uh, there was there's a whole article about how he, when he went up in space, how this, it's called the overview effect, and how this filled him with immense sadness and how connected he felt to each and every living creature on the planet. Now, this seems silly and sappy, but I think there's something really to this and, you know, seeing the Earth from the perspective of space, I think, would shift your paradigm in a way that in some ways everyone should have to see this at least one time in their life. I totally agree with you, Dan. And, you know, it's interesting because here at UCI, just to put in a shameless plug for a colleague, you know, there's faculty who study wonder and awe. And, you know, there is a very real biological effect of just seeing things on Earth that have amazing you know, the sequoias, the Grand Canyon, you know, the, these sort of natural wonders um, that like just engender awe in us and, and, and overwhelm us. And it's weird because, you know, on the one hand, we've all seen the space images of it. Right. And that's the thing that's fascinating to me is that somehow, um, you know, as the human, you're you. You do get some wonder and awe out of seeing images of stuff. Obviously, that's why art works. We love art, whether it's paintings or photos. But there is just another visceral level of actually being there, right, that just takes things and, and just hits you in a new way. And so I, I, I've always had the dream of going to the space. This is why I ended up studying foams and bubbles. 
you know, be, because somehow that was connected in my brain. Don't ask me how. Um, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, could put yourself in a bubble and go into space, I imagine. Probably, you know, yeah. apparently if you want to go into space, it's, it's more, you know, more likely if you're a rocket engineer, perhaps, I don't know, it at least gets you connected to space flight um, and space camp. Ben can, can share that. <laughs> um, well, you could be a billionaire as well. You could have gone that route and just uh, and made I a bazillion gone, yeah. dollars and then gone into space. You know. <laughs> I mean, what my last shameless plug, and then we'll see how Ben feels about space. Yeah. I am on Unexplained Phenomena with Will Shatner, so I'm really right. bummed that he didn't ask me to come along. <laughs> now, that, that sentence, you know, suggests I've met the man. I have right. not met him. Yeah. I, I've been trying hard to get into my contract, but as you know, Dan, I'm a bad negotiator. Yep, so. I'm aware. That's how I got you on the show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it's important to think about space as when you get when you look down on earth you can see how like fragile and thin the part of earth we enjoy is like the atmosphere is is such a thin little layer on top of the earth and astronauts often comment on how it seems like we're basically just kind of clinging on here and we need to and we need to respect what we have because it it, it is this fragile little zone that we can enjoy and live in and so you know i i'm honored by what astronauts and what like William Shatner said when he came back and how, you know, we really need to protect what we have. Well, I think getting perspective on anything that is different than, than what you are is extraordinarily important. And what I mean by that is we are we have the privilege of being born in the United States. We've won the lottery. There's 300 million people here and there's six billion people on Earth. That, that Those numbers are very thin, right? If we'd maybe go to some slums in third world countries and see what that looks like, then we can appreciate our station here a little bit more and, and want to help other people who do not have anything close to what we have. And I think that that, that is something we can do on Earth. But the point is, when you're on Earth, this is the only form of life we know in the universe, right? Now, now, Denon, I, I think you and I might have some different perspectives on whether there is life elsewhere, but we can't agree that as of right now, the only confirmed life is on this planet. And so we take it for granted. And when you are up and looking into the void of space where we know that there is nothing for as far as you will ever go, light doesn't even get from one end to the other without traveling billions of years. I think that would be that would be a paradigm shift that I think humanity needs a wake-up call in some ways, uh, which would require sending people into space. But now I'm going to contradict myself here, guys, uh, because <laughs> are Beavis and Butthead really the guys who should be sent in space? Should we really just be sending anyone into space? Should Shatner? Should Bezos? Should they be going into space? I mean, you know, I hate to bring up a tragedy here, but look at the, the, the Challenger, uh, the Challenger uh, tragedy in, in the 80s. We were sending a teacher into space. Is that necessary? Are, this still seems like an extraordinarily dangerous endeavor. We are getting better at it. But do the risks um, outweigh the rewards? In some ways, I think maybe the answer to that is yes. Okay, you just switched on me, Dan. I, I was trying to follow you there, and you said, yes, the risks outweigh the rewards, so the we risks. should be sending people up? So we should not or be. The risks outweigh the rewards, so that we should not be sending people oh, up. Oh, yeah, I, I clearly was unable to follow that analysis. I was like, when you said yes, I'm like, yes, we're all going to space! No, Yay! yes, the risks no. <laughs> outweigh the rewards. I'm going rewards. on I'm on this side okay. of the argument now, Denon, yeah. I, I, I'm glad I asked I, my follow-up I jumped question. the scales. I jumped from one side <laughs> yeah. of the scale to the other at the drop of a hat. I can argue anything, Denon, but right 
right now I'm no, saying no. no into space. It's too dangerous. Yeah, so, okay. So I will I will take the opposite opinion and say the rewards outweigh the risks, perhaps. Um, or, or at least, you know what? If you're rich enough and you want to gamble, look, you can, you can go play poker or, or fly into space, right? You know? Sure. <laughs> they're, they're, sure. they're similar <laughs> games. Um, right. But I, I think you asked that fundamental question, and I've actually wondered this kind of my whole life because I think I've mentioned this on this show before. I wrote my college essay. Um, that got me into colleges on the premise that the only way to save humanity was to go into space. Interesting. Um, oh, you have, yeah, that sounds familiar. That's, yeah. and, okay. and in fact, I quoted Star Trek at the beginning of my essay. Um, <laughs> because what else do. are you going to quote for right. a college essay? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I did one on pro wrestling, so you know we were of like so, mind. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but my one of the things I've always been fascinated by, right, is this this sort of change in humans valuing of human life. Because if you think about, you know, sort of the European exploration of the world, whatever your view of, of sort of how well the Europeans treated the world in doing that, it was an incredibly risky endeavor. Um, and, and those in charge at the time certainly felt human life was of sufficiently low value that we could shove a bunch of people in a boat that's more likely to sink than not um, on the off chance that there's gold somewhere or some other way of making money. And so right now, it intrigues me, like, is the thing that's going to take us into space that we actually get space travel safe enough that we're all willing to do it? Or is somebody going to discover something that would make them a lot of money and they're going to decide, oh, that is well worth risking all these other people's lives and they'll just start sending people into space again. Like, are we going to it's that repeat? one, Denon. It's that one, Denon. <laughs> is it that it's one? It's that one. Yeah, it's one you just said. That's what it is, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's important to also acknowledge, you know, Dan, you mentioned that things are getting safer when it comes to space travel. And obviously, the newest uh, vehicles have not flown as often as, say, the space shuttle did. So we don't know for sure if they're safer or not safer, because we don't have the evidence. But what we do know is that the shuttle was not especially mm -hmm. safe. And so, uh, you know, if you just look at its failure count to and close call count to successful flights, it was not very good. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, <laughs> and the way the engineers got overridden on that day um, when the Challenger flew is was the was the cause of that that disaster? Unfortunately, you know, it was management. It was sticking to a schedule for for publicity's yep. sake that caused that that um, that fatal disaster. And so, I think it's important to acknowledge that space is dangerous, but we can make it safe by by listening to the the experts and by uh, using systems that we trust and 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 engineer properly. And listen to those systems when they tell us that something's not going right. Yeah, I mean, publicity is the problem there. And, and I will say, as a, as a foreshadowing to a future episode, is that, you know, Earth is very hospitable to human beings. Space is not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Space is extraordinarily <laughs> hostile yeah. to life. And I would say that early life started out in the ocean, and the land was extraordinarily hostile to everything that lived in the ocean, and yet... We evolved, we came onto land, evolved enough to leave the land. So I imagine it is the next step for what we want to do. I just, as you mentioned, Ben, uh, publicity, human error gets in the way. And I don't know that we need to needlessly risk lives 
uh, in order to go into space. But I also understand that we have to do, uh, we have to push human understanding and science forward. It is a balancing act uh, that I think can sometimes be extraordinarily tricky is what I'm saying, Dan. And you know what, Dan? I think to something Ben said, right, you want to listen to experts and you want to have your checklist. And right. I do want to go back briefly to something we discussed, you know, is Beavis and Butthead doing the manual docking. Yeah. I'm really concerned that on the checklist was not, can the people doing docking see? <laughs> right. Right. Like, right. They, they yeah. sent him right. They sent them over to the device. Um, we did not see a checklist procedure. We know, you know, there is evidence, you know, flight safety made great leaps forward when pilots were given checklists. Um, Ben's readiness for the show made great <laughs> right? leaps forward yeah. when he was given a checklist. <laughs> you know? It sure did. Um, right. You know, I, I should have a checklist. Yeah. Um, your, you know, your, pro- your performance am, will go through the roof once we get you one. I know. I, yeah. I'm, I'm the biggest <laughs> risk on the show at the moment without a checklist. Uh-huh. But But clearly... Future note to NASA expeditions on the top of the checklist, can I still see? Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> it's fascinating that like that wasn't part of the checklist. And it's also fascinating how like kind of quick it all happened. I mean, maybe for dramatic effect, they were uh, speeding up the, the timeline. But like docking and rendezvous procedures take hours, generally <laughs> yeah. speaking. And so I, I really do wonder, like, why were they like out of the room like five minutes before they had to, you know, do their job. Like, you know, they've been prepping for hours, presumably, to do this rendezvous and docking procedure. And then all of a sudden, and they just let them screw off and go look at the sun through a telescope five minutes before it's they're, they're on. It, That's uh, how good they were. I mean, some of the best performers, you know, they, they don't even get ready until they hit the stage, you know, and that's Beavis and Butthead for you. I mean, there, there's something special about them <laughs> is what I'm saying, Ben. Uh, and there's something special, not only about us, but about our conversation. Then, and you mentioned that I can, you know, that, that I can take a movie like this and find the little nuggets that we can discuss. Uh, and I thank you for that compliment, but that conversation's important. And, you know, in this movie, we see Beavis developing uh, an extraordinarily intimate relationship with his with the Siri who's on his phone. I think all of us to some level, uh, except for me, I, I don't really deal with Siri at all. But I think a lot of people have really developed a close relationship uh, with either Siri or their phone or, or some other automated voice system, uh, some level of AI that they can, they can talk to. And uh, this is interesting because... You know, uh, could you, will we get to the point where we can interact with a computer and believe it is a human being? And I want to say that Microsoft got a patent for creating chatbots, and there are several chatbots that have been created, where they mimic uh, the, the, the tone, intonation, word choice, sentence structure of living or dead people, uh, be them celebrities or even a loved one. And to me, I, I don't know how I feel about this. You know, the idea is to scrape social media using voice data, images, um, you know, messages, everything like that to get a sense. Uh, you know, this is Westworldian type stuff here, getting a sense of a person by taking their footprints throughout life and accumulating them and reconstructing digitally. Uh, I don't know how I feel about this, but they are extraordinarily accurate from what I understand. What do you think about this, Denon? Oh, there is so much in here, Dan, that creeps me out. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> That's good. You know, one is <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I mean, w- one is I I I just switched to um, the Apple products. I don't know if we can have. I mean, we now need some money from them. Yeah, I was gonna say don't don't buzz market. We're that. not we're not getting any scratch yeah. from that. 
I know. Yeah, I work on that. But I, I just switched over, and I have one of those watch things, and I've never used Siri. And it is a little creepy that periodically my watch goes, sorry, can't help you with that. Don't understand. What are you trying to do? And I'm like, I am not talking to you. <laughs> right. Get out of here. <laughs> and yeah. so, so I think one of the problems is these chatbots we're creating, they're getting lonely, and they're trying right. to engage with us. Yeah, I think that's right. right. I, mean, I think that's clear. Yeah. So that's one. The other kind of interesting, creepy thing, just I'll try and be quick on this, is Feynman, in one of his books, Richard Feynman, famous physicist, um, was writing about his experience and why he wasn't let into the army. And one of the questions they asked him is, do you ever talk to dead people? And without thinking, he just said yes, because he said he talks to his dead wife all the time in his head. Mm -hmm. Um, She doesn't talk Mm. back, but he does, right? Like, And so- That he admitted, right. Right, that he admitted. That kept him out of the army, apparently, he claims. Um, interesting story. But it, we, we, do, we do all embrace, I mean, never mind dead people. I imagine conversations with people who aren't in the room at times, like, um, you know, don't feel creeped out by that. Right. Never talking to you without you around dead. Just, <laughs> but, but there are some people, you know. And so, yeah. so if you're going to do this, like, is this... We've mentioned evolution. Like, mm-hmm. is this our next step of evolution? You know, um, helping people have these imaginative conversations that we sort of have already in our heads. Um, I don't know. I'm just, you know, going down a different, weird, creepy route. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, I'm not a fan of the the voice assistants. I don't use them at all. I, it's, I think it's a mixture of me being a mumbler and they don't hear me very well, <laughs> and also me just not wanting that. Uh, information in their servers. I'd rather just uh, <laughs> type and click what I need rather, and, rather than trying to yell at a device and have it misunderstand me <laughs> 20 times in a You'd row. You'd rather give, it, give them your information a- in an analog fashion than in a, in a digital fashion, I guess. I mean, I'd argue it's the I'm the digital right. one because the voice is analog. Right. That, that is fair. That is fair. <laughs> I, I guess it is the ultimate analog. And you, I, I do have to admit, you do mumble quite a bit, uh, which which is something that I fall into as well. Uh, I'm with you, Ben. I, I'm extraordinarily. You, you guys know I'm an extraordinarily paranoid person, and the last thing I want <laughs> is to be sending my voice and my information and my likes and dislikes, uh, musical tastes and all that to some server uh, somewhere else, so that they can then use it uh, and, and weaponize that information and then sell me stuff. I don't want it, guys. I don't want it at all in my life. Uh, but Beavis did, uh, and he developed quite a, quite a loving relationship. So maybe there is, again, balance. Maybe that's the theme of the episode here. Maybe there is a balance between that. And maybe some people who've lost a loved one, maybe having that chatbot to talk to could be very comforting. I mean, it, it is as close as we can get right now to having that human being there without cloning them and aging them quickly. I, th- I think we can agree on that. Uh, but if you know... Uh, Dan, uh, I've got to add something sure. else to that, okay. though. Okay, all right. Yeah, no, it's really important because one of the... I think the interesting things to me about that conversation was in a way Siri and, and Beavis were having two different conversations. Right? <laughs> if you followed it aren't closely... All, aren't right? all couples having two different... Right. Well, <laughs> I, well, you know, what's interesting is I, I just have to share a, a, a fun personal story, and I don't mean... I mean this in a genuine way. Sure. Early in my life, my, uh, my wife's grandmother was staying with us. She was in her 80s. My brother is Down syndrome, and my child was about four. And the three of them were playing a game of cards. And it was fascinating to watch them all play a different game 
at the same time. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, hmm. Her grandmother thought they were playing, I think, um, you know, like Crazy Eights. My brother was playing Go Fish, which was the only card game he could play at the time. And my four-year-old was just having fun holding cards and throwing them on the table. So, <laughs> you know, it, but yet, but yet the game worked, Yeah. right? They all had fun and they interacted. So there's another side to this, which makes me wonder, as you said, about this human interaction when we're not all doing the same thing and we're on these different paths. So there, there was actually, as much as this movie confused me in many regards, that scene I think was one of the most fascinating and insightful like pieces, little, little nuggets of film that I'd seen in a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is interesting because, you know, they aren't interacting in a traditional sense. They are in some ways talking at each other. And I would say... Is that really human interaction? Just talking without being heard or listened to and without being responded to, is that interaction? I mean, were, were your family members, were they all playing the same game? Now, no. The answer to that is I would argue no. Were they having fun? Yes. So, you know, do you need to understand yeah. each other to have fun? Probably not. But do you need to listen to engage? Maybe so. I don't know what I'm saying yeah. here, but there are lots of facets is all that I'm saying. It's a diamond of, of it's a nugget of, of, of a phenomenon that, that I think we should get into. But I think if there's any nuggets that we have missed, uh, we can briefly talk about them here. This is our errors, additions, and omissions section. Things we wanted to talk about, but we didn't quite have time for. Denon, is there anything about Beavis and Butthead that, we, that you wanted to mention that we didn't quite get to? Well, there's two two important things. One, the science fair opening scenes were very triggering for me. Uh -huh. um, I've only had <laughs> negative science fair experiences. Yeah. Um, but but I realized I, I sold myself short at one point. One of my science fair projects, I still remember, involved yeast. I have no idea what the goal was. But at the fair itself, my entire system um, bubbled over, dare we say, with a lot of foam. That may mm. have been, you know, sort of foreshadowing of my future mm. science career. Definitely. But um, it, did, it did kind of attack the station next to me. I did not burn down the entire... Um, science fair, which is apparently what you need to get a free trip to space camp. So if I had only designed a more destructive science fair project, I think I could have been going to Houston. Um, the, the second thing, you know, as a, a, a Beavis and Butthead neophyte, mm -hmm. you know, my first time watching Definitely. it, um, the only thing I could not figure out, well, there was a lot of things I couldn't figure out in life, but the, the one thing that I found fascinating was on uh, any reference to anything they, they say, they said, blah, 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 and make a joke. Um, so I don't know how they get through life with one of them being named Butthead and actually get past that in a conversation. Um, why aren't they stuck in an infinite loop of you said Butthead, you said Butthead, you said Butt, or Butt, Butt, but. yeah, just The infinite loop dangers were just huge, Dan, huge. And I don't know how they avoided them. I don't know how we didn't talk about that. It, it, uh, there must be something. Um, because you, you raise a very interesting point here, and that seems like you know when when you're in a sci-fi movie and you got to blow up the robot, you give it into one of those those loops. That feels like you could blow up Beavis and Butthead that way. I'm not sure. Uh, but what about you, Ben? Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Well, I, I, there's two things. One, you know, as a, as a science fair judge uh, here in Los Angeles and California, I was I was definitely thinking, how would I grade? <laughs> How would I judge Beavis and Butthead's project? Because there is potentially some science there if they recorded it well and did some stuff. Although, since it involves human testing, they would have had to pass the 
review board of, <laughs> with human subject testing. And I don't know if they would have uh, gotten past that and been able to submit their project right. at all. But, well, they've uh, got human testing <laughs> and human testees. Then you have to, I mean, what, you're going <laughs> to measure the, the, the crushification well, of, your, of your, you know, testicles? Yeah. Again, having a test, when your test subject is a living thing, uh, that that brings in a lot more scrutiny. So I, I can understand why they probably didn't even have a booth because <laughs> the the review board probably wouldn't even let them uh, submit that project. But the other thing I really thought was interesting about the movie was the fish out of waterness of it when Beavis and Butt had come back. I think it would be really fascinating to think like what would happen if a teenager showed up from 1998 showed up in today's world and was just handed an iPhone like. Would they figure it out? Would they know what to do with that? I mean, it, it's, it leads to a funny scene, but it's also kind of an interesting process, a thought process of how much technology has changed in 20, 25 years. And could you just adapt instantly like that? It, it, was, it was interesting and kind of an insightful moment they had there for Beavis and Butthead. Well, we had that moment kind of in real life, right? Like I have a 96-year-old grandmother, right? Like computers have been around mm-hmm. for... Uh, almost 30 years or something, <laughs> 35, I mean, 30 years. I mean, she's never been introduced to one. And at this point, if I were to show her one, it might as well have been made by, you know, Zeta Reticuli, you know? I mean, it doesn't, it could be, uh, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's so far removed from anything that she's aware of. She's familiar with the concept, but would have no idea how to use it. So maybe your distance from that technology is somehow correlated to your adaptability. I, I, I don't know. Um, but there, mm. there, I, I'm sure that there's some formula there for sure. Uh, but I do know that there is 100% a formula when it comes to that G4 simulator we see in this movie. And, you know, Denon, you've gotten a few shameless plugs in, in here. You know, kudos to you for that. You've won for this episode. You got more than I did, and I'm very impressed by that. Uh, but, you know, we did do uh, – this is a shared shameless plug, but we did do a whole episode on Maverick, uh, which I'll put a link here. And they talk we, we talk about G-forces a lot there, and it was cool to see that, you know, where you spin around this trifical force kind of simulates that. It's a lot of fun. Yep. Uh, we also see them in a gyroscope. I was in a gyroscope, and it is very unsettling. It's a very strange feeling to be doing that. And <laughs> the reason I could never be an astronaut, guys, is not because of the danger, not because of uh, the overview effect, but that vomit comet. I, would, I don't think I would handle <laughs> that level of drop, and I believe that that's what floating in space feels like, is you're essentially constantly falling. Um couldn't handle it, guys. Could not handle it. Plus, I have a fear of throwing up. Uh, but we're going to get to that on a different episode. Uh, but if you have any thoughts on anything we've talked about, including my phobias, you can get in touch with the show. Easy to find on social media. Twitter, at FGGGBTPod. Facebook, at FGGGBT. Website, at FGGGBT.com. Stick in a forward slash merch if you want one of those cool shirts or the mug that Denon's always talking about. And speaking of Denon, you want to find him and talk to him individually or any of us, frankly. Where do you find you? Denon, let's start with you. Where do we get in touch with you? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name. It's at Denon Michael. And then on Facebook, you stick in the prof. It's at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? Spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. And if you have any questions you want us to solve, if you have something about Beavis and Butthead you were wondering about that we didn't quite get to, questions at FGGGBT.com is the way to get in touch with us. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, 
Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss an episode. And finally, this show contains powerful scientific information, although from an extraordinarily unlikely source. But nonetheless, you want to be careful with it because you may have a choice before you, good or bad. And we tell you on this show, you always want to choose superhero over supervillain. That's what you want to be. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.